Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. What's the power of story? Well, joining us today on the podcast is author, memoir writer, ghost writer, Craig Bollays. Craig is a New York Times, Sunday Times and international best-selling ghost writer of dramatic, engaging memoirs. Over the last two decades, he's written more than 55 books, working with a diverse range of authors for a global audience. His recent work includes Finding Gobi, a New York Times best-selling account that's in the process of being adapted as a feature film by Sony Pictures. And Craig joins us now from the UK. Craig, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. It's really nice to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you back again. And um, those uh, who heard the earlier podcast uh, about um, Newton will know what a fabulous story writer you are. Uh, interestingly, you, you call yourself a memoir writer or a ghost writer. What does a memoir or ghost writer actually do? Well, so I'm going to start with a confession that about 11 years ago, I, like a lot of writers, was in a position where I realized that I was rubbish and that all the things that I'd wanted to do weren't coming off. And I was just on the verge, really, of sort of giving up. I tried so many different things and none of them had really worked. I had these grand plans, but, you know, there I was just doing my thing. And um, I ended up having a conversation with uh, a man who became my agent, wonderful guy called Don Jacobson. And he said to me, he said, oh, I can tell you, the very first thing he said to me was, I can tell you exactly where you've been going wrong. I said, okay, um, that's a pretty bold opener. And where have I been going wrong, Don? He said, well, you've been doing too many different things. You, you're, you're all over the place. There's nothing specific. You're not good at any one thing. You're just kind of like a bit average at a whole load of things. He said, what do you love doing? What would you pick? That you would that would allow you to say no to everything else. I said, "Oh, mate, that's really easy. I love meeting amazing people who have got interesting stories, listening to them tell their story, and then going away and imagining that story for myself and writing it down." And I'd done that once in one book, and uh, this guy Don said, "Great, so you're a collaborative writer specialising in memoir." And I said, "What's a memoir?" It's exactly what you described. That's memoir. I said, oh, is that a thing? Do publishers publish those kind of books? He said, yeah, and you can do okay with it. So that's what you're going to do, yeah? All right. So memoir is, you know, as a genre, as a, as a writer, it's, to me it's as simple as that. It just is meeting amazing people, hearing them tell their story, feeling impacted by it, feeling inspired by it, feeling excited and then just taking that and, and repackaging it in a way that, that a reader is going to experience it for themselves. It's pretty simple, really. You say it's very simple, but I, I imagine it's quite a complex business. But we would all like to have an agent like that very early on in proceedings, yeah. straight talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What makes a good story? Okay. All right. So the standard response to me is always like this. Right? You've got to have two things. You've got to have a really compelling, unique overarching plot you know something's got to happen and in this plot you need to have some kind of twist some turns some tension some ups and downs and that's got to drive your reader through and that's probably going to be unique it's probably going to be about something that most people haven't really experienced themselves it doesn't have to be but probably is but then within that you've got to have also some universal human truths you've got to have some stuff that's going on that people can relate to now they might not necessarily 
so you take a book like Wild, which is a really great memoir, um, which is essentially a book about someone who walks the Pacific Coast, Pacific Crest Trail, sorry, in, in North America. Now, it's a book about a walk, it's kind of dull when you put it that way. But actually, the internal story of it, the internal arc of it, the universal human truth is about grief. It's about regret. It's about looking back on your life and trying to make sense of it. It's about putting yourself in places where you're going to be challenged. I think if you get those two things in memoir, it's really powerful. It can work really, really well. Obviously, memoir covers a whole load of other areas as well. And the whole bunch of memoirs are just can be just fluff. It can just be a puff piece, uh, someone, you know, telling a whole lot of ego boosting stories. Um, but at its core, at its best, I think it's a very powerful, quite quite dynamic, quite vulnerable way of writing. What's the power of story? What, what is it about story or stories that appeals to us? I think it's pretty basic. I think it's pretty fundamental to human nature. I think it's it's about empathy. Uh, it's about imagination. I haven't really looked into the science of it, but I'm sure there's something about that. I've read something about the center brain, about that bit of our brain that does the dreaming. That's the bit that uh, out of which we can make real large-scale changes in our life. That's the bit that is really quite controlling. Uh, quite powerful um, and that's a very visual part of the brain um, not so much logical I think when you can communicate to that area and story is, is the best is a very good medium to do that not the only one but one of the very good ones I think you can unlock real change you mentioned earlier that you love listening to other people's stories I wonder where this interest in sharing people's stories and listening to other people's stories came from yeah, I, I, Brent, I don't know. I mean, like, in some ways, probably a whole load of different influences. One of them definitely was I was 16 years old and my mum had recovered from breast cancer. And like a lot of people who recovered from a you know a real close shave with death uh, in her 40s, she decided she wanted to do something different with her life. So she started inviting homeless people into our house. So I'd walk home from school outside the house would be all these bottles of cider lined up and inside would be Dublin John, Billy the Glue, Tommy um, Busby, all these guys sitting around and mum making cups of tea and them smoking their roll-up cigarettes. And and I'd sit down and talk to them and you know, I'd say, go on, tell me what it's like to steal a car, you know? What's it like in prison? How do you, you know, how, how do you roll a joint? All these kind of things like 16 year olds kind of or I was fascinated by it at, at, at the time and um my mum would be like, oh Craig you know oh boys and but um generally like it was it was entirely memorable and super super fun and I think there was a, an element of that I think probably when I was at my sort of most um pretentious and arrogant you know at my at my nice school and thinking about how I was going to you know do wonderful things in my life there I was actually sitting down and finding these people who perhaps I would have crossed the road to avoid when I was a bit younger. They were amazing. They were just fun. Yeah. It's great. It sounds like I'm growing up as a vicar's um, <laughs> child in a manse. Where you get yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How does faith come into your stories? It comes in a number of ways, a number of ways. I think sometimes some of the stories are really overt. And I work with a lot of um, Christian publishers, and some of them have, yeah, it, it's front and center and faith is really, really important. And um, increasingly, I think you find authors and publishers want to reach to 
the widest audience possible. Sometimes that's just economics. Sometimes that's just a, a genuine desire, just to um, just to share a story. And I think a, a good story can reach beyond, yeah, certain walls, you know, defined by spirituality. I probably take a, a broader view of faith than I would have done a few years ago. I see. I don't know. I think like there's a book called Unbroken uh, by a woman called Laura Hildenbrand um, about uh, a man called Louis Zamperini who made into a really good film by Angelina Jolie. Now, it's the most incredible story. and But one of the most powerful bits in it is when he decides he's going to go back to Japan to find, try and find the man who brutally tortured him while he was imprisoned in a POW camp and forgive him. To me, that's an entirely Christian story. Um, it's a really powerful faith story. And yet there's no Bible verses in there. You know, there are no three-point sermons, illustrations or anything like that. Yeah, so I... I I see it actually. I mean, yeah, it can fit in a whole lot of ways. Has faith uh, been challenging for you, particularly in your in your younger years? No, I think faith has been challenging for me in my later years. <laughs> I think in my younger years, it was really simple. You know, it was um, go up front and 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 do the things that that people will applaud, and you know, play the guitar and sing songs, or you know talk to parents and talk to adults in certain ways and pray for people and do all those kind of things. I grew up in a charismatic church and there was a lot of, I think for me, I think I, yeah, got a little bit caught up in the performance of it, but loved it, really enjoyed it, then crashed and left it. Yeah, I think these days it, it feels a bit more complicated. Maybe that's just part of getting older. I don't know. But it may, I'm even more grateful for for the the chance I have to be able to meet incredible people. Um, I was talking with a guy just a couple of hours ago who, yeah, I just think it's a remarkable privilege to, to meet people who've got just different, who've lived well, um, who live bravely, who've taken risks and who, um, yeah, can show you a whole other way of what it means to live um, a, a kind of Christ following life. Cause I think we know intuitively, don't we, that there isn't just one way of doing that, that, Jesus leads us in all kinds of different directions. He can be, he can find us in all kinds of places, the rich, the poor. Yeah, those are the top, those at the bottom. Yeah, in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. You wrote a book called The Naked Christian, didn't you? Which was very much, a, I think, if I'm rightly, a call to getting back. You don't remember. <laughs> no, I do remember. I'm wincing just because oh, I feel bad. Okay, well, <laughs> don't feel bad. No, go for it. no, no it, sounds like a fab <laughs> it sounds like a fabulous book. I haven't had time to read it, but it, very much, it seems to be a call to uh, a simple faith in Jesus, really. Well, okay. So what it really was, this was, this was in my phase of, this is when I was on the way to realising that I wasn't doing very well as a writer. This was a really important bit um, because... So there are like three phases of, of my writing career. The first way phase was just by accident. Someone asked me, oh, would you help me write a book? So I took two weeks off work and, and helped him write a book and um, handed it into the publisher. I was probably 24 or 25 at the time. And she said, oh, it looks okay. Why don't you do another one? Did another one. You know, so I would like write a book every four to six weeks, um, mainly with friends of mine who were preachers. And um, they'd put all their, you know, their, sermon illustrations together and we'd package it up in a book and there you go and after a few years of doing this maybe three years i thought ah oh, i kind of would like to have something to say myself i'd like to like write my own books you know rather than just kind of bashing out these books 
So I thought, well, I'm going to write a book, you know, and, and I was feeling a little bit militant at the time. I thought, I'm going to write a book that's really going like, to sort out everything that's wrong with the church. Here, all the things which I think is done wrong. So here we go. And it's going to be multi-volume really work, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so anyway, I talked to this publisher friend. He said, yeah, OK, you can we would publish that if you wanted to do it. I don't know why he said that. But uh, so then, yeah, then there's this book, The Naked Christian Game. Now, fortunately, kind of by the time I got to writing, I realized, oh, you know, it's one of those situations of the fingers pointing out, but you've got three fingers pointing back at you. The things which I thought were wrong actually were really clearly reflected the stuff that was wrong in me. But so I wrote it and, and it was published and nothing really happened to it. And yeah, it was only a few years later I realised, oh, that's the kind of thing I really wanted to avoid. You know, that wasn't so much writing. It was more kind of... Well, I suppose it was what social media has become, just a desperate public attempt for attempt for affection, you know, and affirmation. And, and yeah, and then putting, wrapping God on that, it just felt even worse. So, yeah, I still wince when I think about that and some of the other books. I'm sorry um, I brought it up. Um, I thought but, it was yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's what you when do when you're in your 20s, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, why not? I mean, I thought it was interesting. I, I, it um, came up in my research. At some point you became an English teacher. Yes, that was bad. I was even worse as an English teacher than a preaching writer. I was so bad because I had this theory that, you know, everybody was, and this is a, a, a way back now. It's probably 2001. You know, my first day of teaching was um, 9-11. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> and I had this theory. Yeah. I had this theory that um, everybody was talking about burnout, that you need to be careful you don't burn out. So I thought, well, I'm really going to be careful of this. I, I don't want to burn out. So I'm not going to take any work home. So I was militant about this. I was not going to do any work after the end of school. And I was going to get in 45 minutes before the start of school and do all my planning. And then I was going to do my marking at lunchtime. And um, so I was I was terrible. You know, I was just, just flying by the seat of my pants all the time. I had a really bad way of marking books where I just find three mistakes and then put a pithy comment at the end. And um, yeah, just tried to luster it all with personality. It lasted about two years. Oh, that's Thankfully. that's longer than some teachers have lasted that I've known. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, isn't it? A bad starting on nine eleven. I would have thought that um, was hardly an advantage. Hmm. Is it easier to tell stories? It was inauspicious. No, inauspicious. <laughs> is it easier to tell stories because we have a bigger story, God's story? There's certainly, obviously, with Jesus talking parables. You know, there's a clear affinity which we have. Or there's a groove which we're in, isn't it? I also think we live in an age of storytelling, but we're living in a sort of a second, yeah, an era of secondary orality, where it's almost a little bit like an oral culture we're living in today. Um, the digital age, hypertext has changed how we communicate, and so we've reverted back to, or, or there are echoes of that pre-Gutenberg era when we communicate one-to-one or in small groups and our own story our own interpretation our own telling really matters um rather than fact being black and white so yeah i think this is a this is a great age to be telling stories and people are absorbing them really well you look on netflix you look on amazon um i think people don't necessarily differentiate so much between you know a story they're consuming as an audiobook a story they're consuming as a film or a tv series or as a book it's all part of the whole yeah, so it's a, it's a great time to be doing this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, who are some of the amazing people you've worked with whose stories you've told? Because you've, you've, so, you've, to, you've told so many people's stories. I'm just going through the list of your books. 
and travel yeah. and travel widely to do that too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're all. I try to think the other day what the metaphor was. So how I feel about these people, they kind of feel like, in some ways, they feel like they're friends, even though you know it's an artificial sort of friendship. I feel connected to them. Like one day, I kind of imagine they're all going to get together and, and they're going to. I want to see them in a room. Um, but yeah, amazing people. So, I mean, Eve Rose Telford. You know, this is a woman who was born in Haiti, who had she had backstreet abortions in Haiti when she was a kid, numerous abortions. You can imagine how dangerous that was, and then felt wrapped with guilt her whole young adult life for doing this, um, and had a series of miscarriages and thought this was God's judgment. The day of the um, earthquake in 2010, she happened to be in Port-au-Prince. Her marriage had failed. Everything was going wrong. And she'd been praying, God, I just want to have some kids. And the day of the earthquake, suddenly she finds herself. She survived. And there are 17 kids around her who have lost their parents. And she becomes um, their, you know, immediate and interim mom. Um, uh, uh, some of them, she did reunite with, her with their um, parents. Others were orphans. She now lives in haiti she has i think 40 or 45 kids which oh, she's gosh. adopted yeah. she runs three schools educating i think well over a thousand people she is fierce she is strong <laughs> she's incredible yeah and no one's heard of her and no one's really going to hear of her but you know she is one of the most remarkable people ron olivier you know 16 years old caught in a gang in new orleans killed someone Christmas Day when he was 16, his kid was 14, got sentenced to life without probation or parole in one of the most brutal prisons of America, um, Louisiana State Penitentiary. Um, the moment he was sentenced, he, or before he was sentenced, he prayed. He's like, his mum has always said, if ever you find yourself in trouble and you can't get out, call on Jesus. So that's what he did. He spent 27 years in prison and a change in the Supreme Court law meant that he was able to get parole eventually. And he emerged after 27 years in prison, not as a shell of a man, not as someone with incredible, you know, um, baggage. He emerged with unbelievable levels of freedom, a deep, deep, deep knowledge that he has been forgiven 100% for what he did by the mother of the child he murdered, by society and by God himself. Uh, he's been out about three years now. Uh, and he's living in Louisiana. He's he's married. He's got a kid. It's just incredible. Like I've never met anyone as free as him. So yeah, there's just a, a, an amazing array of people who yeah, I'm I'm so so privileged to spend time with. And uh, gosh, yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad for that conversation with my friend Don, who told me you're doing everything wrong. <laughs> You got to pick yeah, one thing. It comes back to finding that mentor who is prepared to set you straight yeah. and, and give you some guidance. That's what everyone needs. Yeah. In their life. You, you often it sounds to, from the, the the people you have interviewed. It seems that you you are you've interviewed people who've come, gone through a lot of very extreme situations in life. Yeah. You write, I think, that ghost writing is about connection. It's about internal journeys as well as physical ones, and it's about never missing a deadline. End of quote. In what ways is it about connection? Yeah, I used to, yeah, Brent, I used to, um, I used to turn up to a, um, a series of interviews um, and I would kind of map out the plot 
and I'd have a notebook and I'd have my list of questions for each chapter. And I would think, well, I need about 12 hours to write a book. So 12 hours of interviews, so great. So we're going to break that down, blah, blah, blah. Here we go, bam. And I really want to try and keep the, the author on topic throughout. I don't want anything that's going to be a distraction. And um, and there we go, bam. And um, I'm really glad that I ditched that because now I've, I have a different approach. I think I just want to sit with someone, you know, um, like let's go for a ride. Let, let's go for a drive. Let's let's have something to eat let's do something together let's do whatever you would do normally just to hang out and um you know it might feel like a waste of time but actually that's how you get to know someone and that's how they you get to build trust with them that's how they get to trust you and you get to know so much more about someone and the story comes out of that so that's what i mean about connection i also used to think that initially that you had to try and capture someone's voice now on very rare occasions if you're writing someone might have already written and have a quite a clear sort of author voice I've only had that really with one person I've written with before. Everyone else is their first book. And so having a strong narrative voice actually isn't really as important. It's how they make you feel that's the key because that's what you want to translate because you want to think, okay, so if I feel this by this person, if this person is playful and fun or if they're intense or challenging or whatever, that's what you've got to translate. That's what you've got to kind of get the, and you're just trying to get the reader to create it in their minds yeah so again connection without it that's why covid was hard because you're trying to do all, all that kind of stuff over a zoom call and eh, it doesn't really work it's not the same as being in a room with someone uh, and and being able to build empathy in, a, in an yeah. interview for sure although it's a lot easier than doing it over the telephone i can assure you <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely which okay nerdy fat laura hildenbrand with the book unbroken she apparently she never met louis Zamperini. Um, and she just did it all by phone, which makes the book even more remarkable. She must be a remarkable interviewer, is all I can say. I um, you probably already partly answered this, I think. What makes for a good writing relationship? Yeah, I think I think trust is absolutely vital. Um, I think both ways. I think the more... I think there's an element of like pushing each other a little bit as well. I think as a, as a writer, you've got to be prepared to, to push someone into some uncomfortable areas at times. Not always, not not for the sake of it. But I think also letting yourself be pushed a little bit as well, um, not being too fixed about what you think, how this has to be written. So being a bit flexible. Honestly, what is weird about these about being a ghostwriter is that I don't really know very many other people who do it. Um, I know if, I know a few ghostwriters, but I don't know very many who do memoir. So this might be a bit niche. If anyone's listening and you are a memoir writer or you want to be, just drop me an email. I'll be very interested to talk to you. Yeah. Because it's, it's a very it's a niche thing, isn't it? But do, do you uh, presumably the from from what you're saying, you don't know many other ghost writers, if any. I, I know I know a few. Probably, you know, Brent, I probably know about three. Well, I tell you, if you on my website, craigballays.com, there's a, a contact form there. That's probably the easiest way. Right. Okay. And I'll put the yeah, link so to that at the bottom of the podcast. Yeah, that'd be That's great. Right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you find this an isolating job? <laughs> Well, no, because because you can you get to so on Saturday I'm, I'm starting a new book, so I'm going to spend a few days with a guy, and we got a, we've already met once before, and um, so we've already got our rapport. We've been talking for months and months and months, so I know the story. He knows me a little bit, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's going to be fun. Like I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be really really fun because I'm going to spend <laughs> spend a few days thinking about 
man, what's it like to be a special forces guy working in Ukraine, you know, um, in the middle of all that kind of stuff. That's wild. You know, I've, I haven't really put myself in that position before. I can't imagine that. So yeah, no, my head is going to be full. Then I'm going to come back and, you know, prep it, plan it, think about it, chew on it, regurgitate it. You yeah, no, to, it you, doesn't feel exciting at all. You must have to do a fair amount of research for these. Do you do a lot of research um, over and above what the author shares with you? Or I probably do more. The research I do more is more into thinking what is the what's a reader going to expect and what's a reader going to want. So I generally tend to like part of the trust is I trust that the author is the expert on their story. So I kind of don't need to tell them, which is why that's that's why I can I work mostly in America and I'm clueless about a whole load of stuff over there. And it's actually quite helpful. Um, I don't think about, you know, politics or anything like that or some of the cultural you know nuances. Great. It's fine because they can, I'm, I'm blank. But yeah, I, I, I think it's really important. You've got to treat the reader really carefully and treat them with respect. So don't give them stuff that's going to trip them up. Don't waste their time. You know, you're asking for seven hours when they're going to not be on their phone. I mean, that's wild. You know, that's a big commitment you're asking for them. So you've really got to earn that right. So, yeah, knowing what they're expecting, what they like, what they don't like. And Amazon is great for that. Amazon reviews are brilliant. That's your focus group right there. For, yeah. for books which you know are competitors okay in the few minutes we've got left tell us about the two books that are being turned into films craig tani and gobi the story <laughs> of dion leonard yeah yeah well dion so probably that was the that was the first book i wrote when if anyone's a writer you've got to read robert mckee story robert mckee is a script writer and um in this book story he talks about how to write a film scripts but also it works for novels and for memoirs he talks about writing with purpose and finding gobi was the first book i wrote when i really tried to put that into practice and so it moves pretty quickly it's supposed to be quite a, a quick read one of those you know couldn't put it down kind of books and yeah i mean it's an amazing story uh, about an ultra marathon runner who uh, for whom a straight stray dog runs up and joins him in the middle of the gobi desert desert runs more than 70 miles a him and doesn't want to leave um, and he tries to bring the dog home. The dog goes missing. He has to go back to China and try and find it. He does, etc. It's a fun story. And well, what I've since found out is that movies take a long time, a long, long time. I think it's in development. Um, I'm not sure how far it's gone, but that could be a lot of fun. I think it'd be a, it'd be a really fun book. Do you have much to say over what, how, over how it translates to the film? No, I have no. absolutely no. no say whatsoever. I, and sometimes I help out if I can, but not really. And yeah, then Tani is this amazing kid who, um, yeah, fled with his family, fled from Nigeria, and fled Boko Haram, who were going to kill them. Ended up in a homeless hostel in New York um, and uh, started to learn how to play chess. But in a year, he was New York State chess champion. I know, and I he you. is the most remarkable kid ever, as well as doing fart gags by telling you know telling you pull my phone pull my finger and all that kind of stuff he will then turn around and say listen you never really lose in life so why is that Tanny? he was nine years old when he said this he said because as long as you learn then you never lose wow it's like mini yoda is incredible yeah um yeah so that that could well become that's supposed to become a film as well so that's i think on the way i think i've got a writer on it and yeah so who knows i mean these things are beyond anyone's control, but it would be fun. Well, there we are. For someone who uh, 
thought that they weren't any good as a writer. You've turned into a good writer, I would say. Thank you, Brent. That's really kind of you. <laughs> no, that's not kind at all. It's the truth. I've read your books. Craig Belays, there we are, the New York Times, Sunday Times and international best-selling ghostwriter of dramatic, engaging memoirs. Thank you, Craig, for your time and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Craig, thank you so much. Brent, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.